You are listening to Building the Future, Green Building in the New Millennium, brought to you by SustainableHomesOfTheFuture.com. I'm your host, Ian Sollenberger, and this podcast is for anyone that wants to collaborate and learn more about how to design and construct energy-efficient buildings for an environmentally sustainable future. If you have questions about how to design and build with a lower environmental impact, or you'd like to come on our show as a guest, please email me directly at info at shf, that's sustainable homes of the future, shfbuild.com. Uh, visit our website at shfbuild.com or find us on Facebook and Instagram at shfbuild. Our mission with this podcast is to inspire you, our listeners, to go out and be sustainability advocates. Share these ideas so we can truly push this industry forward. We need each and every one of you to help us build the future today. Welcome everyone to Building the Future, Green Building in the New Millennium, uh, brought to you by sustainablehomesofthefuture.com, green consultants, designers, and builders. And this is the podcast where we talk about sustainability, um, specifically in the built environment, uh, also in the human environment, whatever that means, and beyond. Um, depending on the episode. Uh, I'm very excited today to have Chris Kempel with me. Uh, thank you, Chris, for being here. I appreciate you taking time. Thanks for having me. It's great. Awesome. Um, Chris is owner and uh, co-partner of Rockefeller Kempel Architects. Um, and, you know, you and I talked a little bit uh, before this. And one of the things that that I know you're you're really into from looking at the site and um, and talking to you before is is daylighting. In fact, before we hopped on here, you you actually showed me around uh, your office and how you don't use any lights, which is really cool. Um, I'm being lit by the outdoor environment right now. I'm sitting in front of a window, which is um, one of the reasons I do my my interviews at 2 p.m. because <laughs> I have to make sure that the sun is not coming directly in. Um, there's lots of considerations when it comes to using our, our actual environment, our natural environment to inform spaces. Um, and that's a lot of what you do, I assume. So where, um, where, where did you first encounter that? Um, and, and did you always have a passion for uh, the environment? That's a good question. It all started for me, I think, as a, as a kid. Uh, I grew up out in Long Island, and um, you know, growing up, people would ask, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I didn't really have a good idea, I think, of what that was. I know that I enjoyed art and drawing, and I enjoyed, uh, my father did a lot of work on the car, and I would enjoy being next to him as he would be under the hood of our 69 Nova. Hmm. And, uh, small block, not the big block. but. Um, but growing up, I think the, the thing that really started getting me excited about architecture and the built environment was we as kids, uh, we would visit the, we would visit New York City during the holidays and probably the holidays only. And we would always take the train into the city. And it was that moment coming into Penn Station, which is, uh, which is below Madison Square Garden and coming up out of Penn Station into one of the city streets of, of New York City and looking up and just seeing these canyons of buildings and just the, the size and, and just the enormity of it was really the thing that got me so excited about architecture and the scale of it and the possibilities. And, uh, and just found a lot of uh, love for older buildings and uh, moving to Los Angeles here in the early 90s, realizing how many beautiful older buildings there are here and started a practice with someone that it's his passion as well. And uh, that led to a lot of adaptive reuse work that we're doing now. So, um, and to get to your question about natural daylighting, there are a lot of older buildings in downtown Los Angeles that we've found over the years of restoring them that use natural daylighting uh, as a source for everyday working light. And, um, and it's a real pleasure to, to, to restore those buildings and bring them back to life and to see how they were originally intended to be used in terms of their lighting design. 
That's awesome. Um, I'm, I'm curious. I know, I think it was during your time in either college or, or just after you uh, spent a year in Berlin studying um, in Berlin. And I mean, as a juxtaposition, Berlin to New York City <laughs> or even LA, throw that in the mix. Um, what did you learn from the city itself? Uh, and then what did you learn from, from the culture and the society of uh, the German you know, culture that's different uh, than, than here in the U.S.? And what, what might we learn from, from them? Yes, the, the German people are very much about efficiency and a lot of discussions about, about efficiency. Not only just the natural environment, just but the way that you work, uh, your processes. And um, so to back up a little bit, uh, in the mid-90s in 1993, I was part of a guinea pig group of students from North Carolina State University that went over to Berlin to study at the Kunsthochschule in Weissensee. And Weissensee is a, um, a district in the former east part of Berlin. And in 93, the wall had come down in 89, so it had only been about four years since the wall came down. And um, Berlin was a very interesting place to be then because especially in former east, it was quite gritty mm. and just so much opportunity there were old buildings that some um, had vacant sites where something had been bombed. And in some cases, some buildings still had shells or relics of, uh, of their former selves. So it was just a very interesting time to be there. Um, in terms of the way that it shaped my thinking of the city, European cities in general are very, focused on or have a system because of their density uh, public transportation is very important to them mm -hmm. and and really makes that city um, sing and hum and after doing my internship i stayed a little bit longer and worked at a firm in former west berlin and um and then i moved locations from where we were originally living in former east to former West in this beautiful villa out in um, Lichtefelde West, which is simply a town uh, west of uh, former uh, West Berlin. And the way that I would get to the, uh, the way that I would get there would be through a series of, would be an S-Bahn, which is uh, their suburban version of a train, to an U-Bahn, which is the U-Bahn, or their, uh, like a subway type system. And then from there, I would get on a streetcar. Wow. And from the streetcar, the streetcar took me to the office. So I think my experience living in a place like that, you, you got a general appreciation for just the systems of, uh, and the way that a city could work in terms of its systems. And uh, to the point of German efficiency, things generally run on time. And mm -hmm. all, those, all those small clues and things that just, they, they do affect you and they shape you as you're living there and, and thinking and, um, and they affect your architecture too, I would imagine, maybe in ways I don't even realize. Well, that must have been an interesting time. I mean, only three or four years after the wall came down. Um, did you have any experiences with working on buildings in, in East Berlin or talking to folks about buildings in, in East Berlin and how that historical element, the adaptive reuse, I mean, were they looking to just basically raise everything and start fresh because of, of that um, history? Or were they looking to preserve some of that? Um, I'm curious. Yeah, it's a very interesting question. And it had been a long time. So I left in 94 and I had not been back until the year before last. So a lot of time has passed in moving from East Coast to West Coast and going to graduate school out here and starting a practice out here just had not afforded the opportunity to get back to Berlin. And the changes were intense. Um, to, your, to your point specifically, um, when I lived there, one of, the, one of the memories that really stuck out was at the time, in 93, the capital of Berlin was in Hamburg. And they were in, midst, in the midst of returning it back to Berlin and making Berlin the capital city again. Mm -hmm. 
in the midst of that, there was a competition for uh, their capital building, uh, the Reichstag. And um, the building, I don't remember what the building was being used for in 93, but I do recall um, entering into this large rotunda and it was in the midst of an architectural, um, architectural competition. And mm. scattered along the, the ground of the rotunda of the Reichstag were these various and large scale architectural models. For, for an architecture student at the time, it was, I was in heaven. <laughs> and they had, they had uh, models there for many different architects. I, I remember seeing one Frank Gehry's office, and it was this naturally this sweepy kind of thing going on, and uh, a few others. And as a, as, a, as a personal lover of model making, I've made a lot of hand models over the handmade models over, over time compared to, of course, a 3D printing, which is happening currently in our, in our world. Um, it, was a, it was a fascinating place to be. And the winner was a Norman Foster uh, project. We didn't know that at the time. This was just in the midst of the competition. We later found out that it had been awarded to Norman Foster. And the solution that he or his team had come up with was essentially a glass dome on top of the existing historic building. So it was this beautiful juxtaposition between modern, uh, modern Germany and historic Germany. Mm. When my wife and I returned two years ago, um, we went, we toured it, and we had uh, dinner. There's a, there's a small restaurant I would highly recommend it if you ever get an opportunity to go to Berlin. I actually have been to that building. It's, it, it is fantastic. It's got the, um, you walk all the way up, spiral, spiral, and then you walk all the way down and somehow, you know, you don't hit the people on the way down. It's, it's a one-way situation. And when you're looking at it, you're like, wait a second, am I going to see those people over there? And then somehow you don't. <laughs> um, but yeah, I remember being up top and just looking out. Um, it was very cold when we were there, so we didn't spend much time outside. But just that, that view of, of the 360 view of East and West Berlin, you know, um, was really, really spectacular. And I, I was struck by, by that juxtaposition as well. So I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, on the architectural tour, did you take a tour yourself? We did the, the self-guided tour, yeah. Uh, we ended up taking a tour that was guided with a guide. And one of the things they pointed out, I don't know if you remember, but there was a bank of elevators and they purposefully kept some of the existing part of the building, which had been in disrepair, just up against the elevator. And there was even some writing, I believe, up on the wall, if I recall correctly. And just again, just having the beautiful, modern, clean lines next to something that was so historically rich was mm -hmm. just exhilarating. Yeah. For anyone, but especially for me. So, uh, you know, to transition a little bit, what from that or, you know, just from, from those initial experiences, have you been able to bring uh, a particular approach or sensibility into the work that you've done uh, with renovation projects or adaptive reuse? Um, and also as sort of a, a secondary question, do you consider every renovation project to be an adaptive reuse or does the client ultimately sort of set that project goal or say yay or nay when it comes to the idea of adaptive reuse? Yeah, that's a good question. It's, it's always a, a conscious decision by our clients whether or not to, to keep a building or um, we have yet to experience a client that's decided to destroy a building in lieu of uh, building something fresh and new. I, I'd like to believe that if we find a building with, let's call it good bones, that that we can imagine something spectacular in that building and, and be able to share that dream with a client and get them excited about what we're excited about too. Example, we did a project in the arts district um, on between second and third streets. It's, it's over by SciArc, the, the architecture school there. Mm -hmm. And it was, uh, forgetting the dates, I believe it was 
1903 or 1906, but it was the Spreckles Sugar Company Sugar Warehouse. And it's a big, long, beautiful, two-story volume brick building that has train platforms running left and right of it. Hmm. And a very, it's a very long, thin building, like many of the, the buildings are down in that area. And we were working with a client that was trying to determine what we would do with this building. And being downtown, it's, it is the arts district, so it's not downtown proper, but security was a concern. Um, and how do you, how do you manage? And, and parking is naturally uh, an amenity and a concern in, in downtown or, or urban areas in general. Mm-hmm. So we had come up with an idea of creating this internal linear parking structure that ran along the ground level but did not occupy the entirety of the width of the building. So it was wide enough just to have a double loaded corridor from one end to the out, uh, from one side to the other. And then on the, the outer exterior, as you stepped out of the parking lot or the parking structure into your unit, there was a, a ground level piece and then we took the rest of it and divided it up into a three-story loft that lived within the larger two-story volume. Wow. So it was really a clever solution. I, the parking solution, I have to credit my business partner with uh, Rocky Rockefeller. He was, he was the one that came up with that. And then we, we executed um, by taking the rest of the building and turning it into this really fantastic and, and interesting space, a series of row houses, essentially. And the building was a natural fit for something interesting and exciting, certainly from a sustainability standpoint, because there was a glass crew story that ran the entire length of the building. Wow. And the original intent of the building, again, was to have a train come up to either side of it and offload or onload sugar. Mm-hmm. And there was a, a natural opening in the center of the building at either short end where a horse cart and buggy would come up and through and unload and offload the sugar. So it went from horse and buggy to storehouse to train. And what we ended up doing with that row and with that existing clear story was um, adding a patio that just poked out of the roof a little bit. It's very subtle. It's almost like a little inset. And then, and so you have a sleeping room up above and then, we added this, the, the roof more or less of the parking structure, the roof, if you will, that went up, that spanned the entirety of the roof of the building, that's where your main living room was. And it was your, your living room, your dining room, and your kitchen wall at that level. And then you had a sleeping room up above and a sleeping room below. And uh, big windows, again, natural, a lot of beautiful natural daylight, a very wonderful job. But, but, to your point about what does the, you know, how, do you, how do you work with clients? We ended up working with a client that shared that vision with us and was accepting of that. They were a developer and sometimes developers have uh, certain goals that don't necessarily align with the, the kind of artistic mm, vision that you might have for a building because of because of costs or because of what their goals are in terms of density. They've got certain metrics they want to hit. Mm-hmm. And in this case, we were working with uh, a client that was uh, very open to, to and, and contributed a lot to the design vision. So it does matter a lot what type of clients you work with. And, um, and so, and, and there's no particular rule for how do you find the right one. Sometimes they are, they just, and sometimes they just aren't. <laughs> yeah. I assume, you know, the, the earlier in the conversation, I mean, if right from the get-go, you're, you as a firm or you as the architect are, are saying, hey, these are the possibilities or, you know, this is, this is what's possible and really kind of shooting for the stars, then, you know, even, even the, the, the stick in the mud client <laughs> might find one of those elements to sort of latch onto and say, okay, yeah, that's, that's cool. I mean, I, I know as, as a non-architect, but somebody who um, is creative in, in many other ways, you know, in these discussions, I, I always find something that, that 
you know, appeals to me, um, you know, that I'm inspired by in that way. I know not everybody's like, you know, creative on that same level, but I, I think that even, even your, your average uh, client or your average person, you know, with a nine to five job and does not consider themselves creative still gets kind of jazzed about one aspect, whether it's efficiency or whether it's health or whether it's, you know, daylighting or whether it's, uh, you know, solar panels or, you know, whatever it may be, you know, if you can get some buy-in in one tiny little aspect, do you find that that then sort of opens the door for some, some further conversation about, you know, higher level sustainability options or, or potential? It absolutely can open that door. We often like to talk about an education process with our clients, not trying to sound like we know something more than someone else does, but if you've not built before, there are just possibilities that you, the normal person just doesn't think of. And that's really our role and responsibility as architects to bring these options and possibilities in front of our clients. And to your point, often when you start to share what is possible, they get very excited about it and one thing leads to another. In this particular case, our client was uh, very on board with uh, trying to push the sustainability aspect of this building as much as, as, much as they could, hmm. to the point where our goal was to set, we set our goal for a lead, as a lead platinum building. And unfortunately, um, at the very tail end of the project, uh, given certain economic constraints, uh, we weren't able to use a certain type of high efficiency um, mechanical system or as high, it was certainly a high efficiency mechanical system, but one that was high enough to reach our goal of lead platinum. It just wasn't economically sensible for, for this client. And so for us as architects, it's a matter of understanding where our, our client is and their goals are and trying to help balance and get the most out of any project that they can, um, knowing what we do know about, about the subject. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and it's, a it's definitely a juggling act. Yeah. And, and I've talked to a lot of folks who, you know, even, even if the, the cost Delta is almost nothing, you know, sometimes people get or clients get a little scared by, all the certification programs and uh, you know, maybe even just the, the amount of work that goes into that um, having to hire a, a third party consultant, perhaps, you know, the energy modeling and, and all these tools, which it, part of my mission here with this, this podcast and our mission as a company is, is to get the word out that integrating all of those ideas earlier on in the process can actually lead to some potential cost savings. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Maybe an example of a project where, uh, you know, you, you went in with one particular goal and then found some, some cost savings for a client and, and um, during that process? That's a good, that's a good question um, and a good point to bring up. Um, so we're doing a, a beautiful home right now up in uh, up in Manhattan Beach, hmm. and uh, it's a very a very nice sized lot. It's a it's a it's a twelve thousand square foot lot, which is a nice size um, yeah. for, for Manhattan Beach for the deep cities. And through this process, and again, it goes. I, I give a lot of credit to our client who has really embraced the idea of technology and the possibilities of technology, but. Um, we, we toured multiple homes before taking the step, the first step in designing this home. And one of the things that had come up was the idea of using geothermal. Mm. You might not think of geo, like geothermal as a sensible sustainability solution um, in Southern California, but um, when you do a life cycle cost analysis of what that system can do to help aid other systems, there's a swimming pool in this, in this home. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and 
other systems that all work together to benefit from the geothermal system. I forget the exact uh, the payback time, but it's shorter than you think. Yeah. And, um, that was really a, a determining factor. That cost savings was a determining factor for this client to say, I'm going to invest up front as a legacy home. This is not a home that I intend to say flip. It's, we're building this for a family for the longer term. Um, and when I, as I'm saying that, I'm thinking in Germany, one of the things that I did notice about the idea of, say, for example, transitioning to home design mm -hmm. is that often families don't move very often um, there. And so the idea of committing to something that you're building and putting that type of longer term investment in terms of sustainable solutions um, is something that was often at the forefront of discussions there hmm. and that manifests itself here in the, in the same way in terms of thinking on, on the longer term uh, this house also has over a 20 kilowatt uh, pv array up on the roof it has a, a like we designed the home to be um to accept a pv array that had a, a better or more optimal um orientation but didn't affect the architecture of the house in the sense that it felt like oh there's this thing up on that, up on that roof yeah. and um, again crediting this client they came to us and said hey you know tesla now has these tiles these pv tiles like what do you think about that and um so sometimes our clients bring ideas to us and frankly okay. i don't know if we would have pushed a a geothermal solution on a, a residential client in Southern California. Uh, we have a geo, we finished a, up a, a beautiful home up in Oregon and there's a, there is a geothermal solution in that house. Uh, we did with Hammer and Hand, who was mm. the general contractor. And if you know Hammer and Hand, they have a whole high performance division of their, uh, of their construction company. Um, and and so for them, it was natural to think in terms of, well, of course, we're going to have a geothermal uh, loop and solution here. So, um, but in Southern California, this was really something that our client latched onto themselves and, and we went along for the ride. I said, absolutely, we would love to do this, but it's, you know, there are, there are upfront costs. And then it's a matter of, to your point, there, there are long-term savings, absolutely long-term savings. So mm -hmm. it's a win-win. It's there's your 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 carbon footprint is naturally less, and you're saving money. So it's kind of a win-win. I love that. I mean, that's that's the the goal for any you know sustainability nerd is is the win. Not not just the win-win, but the win-win-win. You throw that third win in there, and you know, people, profit, planet, um, and and I think. You know, things like that, being open to these new ideas, being open to um, thinking outside the box, you know, is clearly something, something that you guys are doing actively. So I, I commend you for that. Um, and I would venture a guess that now that you've done that once, that's going to be in the back of your mind for some other project down the road. It might not, you know, it's not going to be every project, but for something where that makes sense now you've got that in there and and you're like oh okay well let's explore this you know and the more options that we have the the better on one hand um on the other hand you know there's all this technology uh, that's coming out right now or that's out right now you know um data mapping building science technology i mean a, a lot of things that give us data that give us you know information um, that can be used in, in building buildings and, and designing buildings. And I'm curious, is it almost too much, you know, sometimes like is, is there an, an intuition being an architect or a designer? Is there an intuition that actually sometimes is more valuable than, than just looking at the stats? What do you think about that? That's, that's a great question. And um, I think the answer is you can absolutely be overwhelmed by the technology. Um, you, can, you can also, I think, be frozen by the technology. There's just, 
for example, the, the home I was just mentioning where we're doing a, about a 20 kilowatt PV array and the discussion behind whether or not we would go to some type of photovoltaic tile, the discussion versus a more traditional attached panel, mm -hmm. um, the, the, type of, uh, the type of discourse that, that really surrounded that had to do with, well, do we want to tie ourselves into a technology that maybe in five years, not as necessarily obsolete, but has certainly been superseded. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the ability to take a more traditional attached solar panel and swap it out in five or 10 years versus I am replacing the entirety of my roof. Um, and also this, this particular shingle technology from what I understand is somewhat new and hasn't been proven in terms of, okay, I understand we're in Southern California and we care maybe less about keeping the water out, but you know, how does it perform in, over the long term? And so some of this technology that you're talking about has not been proven necessarily for long periods of time. And so what we as architects uh, try to do and have, have sort of really latched onto um, uh, are really the tried and true and more kind of intuitive approaches to sustainable design, which you started to, to mention. And what I mean by that is we're, we're California modernists at heart. Here we are in this beautiful temperate environment and why not allow your, yourself to live in this healthy space, natural daylight, open the windows and, and let this in and through. And the, you know, the, the Neutras and, um, and the Eames and, the, and, and you, you name those, those classic modernist California architects. Yeah. And, um, and, and they latched onto something that I've, I, I think for us as a firm, we, we take into every one of our projects, just you know, how does the space feel? How does the natural light feel? Um, how does the scale feel? What's your connection to the outdoors? Are you able to frame certain aspects of your property, whether or not it's an ocean view or city view, maybe it's just a tree that you have on the property, something that makes the home feel bigger or your living environment or working environment feel more connected and finding that right balance. Um, and that isn't really about technology per se. That's not about the latest gadget or using recycled rubber bands as insulation. Um, you know, so for us, I think a lot of it does have to go back, does go back to a certain level of intuition and how can we use things that, um, again, tried and true, and they are sustainable approaches, but they don't particularly rely ultimately on some gadget or some piece of technology. Mm -hmm. So there's a, a balance and there's, there's a pretty large um, library of parts that you can draw from when you're designing a workplace or a home and you're trying to be sustainably focused or, or, or minded. Um, yeah, you mentioned two concepts uh, in your in your response right there. You know, one biophilic design, you know, re representing nature in the design, and also um, a connection with nature. You know, whether it's framing a tree or um, I saw I saw the the banyan uh, oh. project on on the website, and super. I'm, I'm a huge tiny home fan to begin with, uh, so. Yeah, I mean that that just got me going. But the way that you were able to take this tree that's there, and then I'm assuming it's a banyan tree. It's or is uh, it not? it's an Aleppo pine. Uh, oh, interesting. Yeah, the um, it's a good the the project is on Banyan Drive. Got it. Canyon, hence that's why it's the the Banyan uh, treehouse. But it is an Aleppo pine that had fallen on the property. So oh, here wow. it had fallen. And the, the owner, whether or not it was conscious or not, had not yet 
taken it down or replaced it, but before it even had an opportunity to remove it, it started growing vertically again. So we had this very unusual and unique situation where the tree is, goes, sort of grows horizontally, perfectly horizontally for about, oh, 12, 15 feet, and then it makes a 90 degree turn and turns up. So when our client came to us and said, we want to build a tree house, well, we thought, well, probably not going to attach anything to a tree. But what we did is we created a metaphoric forest, if you will, with these, these trunks, these, these columns that supported this tiny tree house mm-hmm. and, and allowed the tree house to hover over the, um, over the um, trunk. And then we cut a glass hole in the floor so that that visual connection as you're sitting there at there's a kind of a, a desk as one of the functions in this small tree house and you roll your much like this chairman now rolls over a glass floor and you look down and there's the tree and you're connected to the tree even though we're not latching onto it so yeah That's to so your cool. point you know that making you like there's we live in such a beautiful environment here in southern california um, there's really, even if you live on the, the tiniest of properties, there's, there's only something that you can latch onto, a, a tree, a, a, a garden, um, a piece of sculpture, you know, something that allows you to feel like you're outside of yourself. And there's something very healthy about connecting to nature. Um, I probably should know more in terms of the, the biology and the science behind it, but it's, it's, it's a feeling that's undeniable. Um, and anyone that in many of our homes, we, 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 that's one of the main drivers of the design of the home is the, is the context. So yeah. what's unique about this site and what can we draw on and what will shape the building? And then once you're in the building, your response to that thing, which we work so diligently to allow you to either interact with or focus on, so, you know, it's, and it's a real pleasure to see clients. They don't need maybe necessarily understand that while we're going through the design process, but we know in the backs of all they're really going to love this. And, um, and then to, and it's happened in a few occasions to get that email a few nights after they're living in the home and they realize, oh my gosh, I didn't realize this or I didn't realize that. And we just love it. And it's an intangible and it all goes back to a real, it's, a, it's really a sustainability approach in terms of health and the way that you live and, and being connected to natural daylight and, and the outdoors and the, and the, the temperate, you know, this, how can you deny this beautiful place we live in? So, yeah. And I think what's, what's kind of fun about that too is, you know, in an urban environment, you can use, I mean, maybe it's not a natural thing. That's the inspiration. Maybe, um, like there's a, there's a development here in Santa Monica that, uh, this is gonna be kind of an odd example, I guess, but every day when I'm riding or driving down, generally riding my bike down Broadway, there's this, uh, this development that's a, uh, I assume single family home with like three units in back. So basically four units, but one's the the main one. And then there's some apartments in back, but it's new, new construction. Um, and it just so happens to be right near the corner. It's not on the corner, but it's near the corner of uh, 11th and Broadway. Mm-hmm. And it's this big triangular uh, front building and the back building is what it is. And there's some material, you know, that speaks to each other or whatever, but the building itself is so cool because you're there stopped at a stoplight at a corner in Santa Monica. And then you're looking over and there's no way to miss it. You're looking at this corner. That's, you know, like it was designed. Somebody had that idea, I think, you know, to say, Oh, this is right near that intersection. Let's, let's make it kind of, speak to the intersection you know what can we celebrate absolutely exactly what can we celebrate um so it can be it could be a natural element it could be a a man-made element it could even be the context of um the neighborhood itself you know um 
I can't think of a specific example. Maybe, maybe you can, but you know, those ideas of just what do we have and how can we, how can we celebrate it and how can we use it, um, you know, for the, for the biophilic piece. And then also just the idea of passive design, you know, using the wind, using the shading, using, you know, whatever it may be to uh, up the efficiency and lower the mechanicals uh, of a house. I mean, if, if, or a, a building certainly. And if you can do that, then, then you're, you're already a, a bunch of steps ahead from the average building. Um, I don't know if you have anything, that wasn't really a question, so. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, there's, there's, I think the context of wherever your project is, your, your home, your office, there's, there's, always, there's always something outside of ourselves to draw on to really help inform, um, to inform what we do as designers. And I think that's the beauty of it. And that's what, that's part of the, the challenge. That's part of the, the mystery and the part of the quote unquote creative part. Um, and so that's, which is why I cringe. Oh my goodness. So my parents, I'll, my parents don't listen to this. <laughs> they're, they're building a home now uh, in a different state, but they came to me and I'm like, and, and they said, well, we, you know, we found, we found a couple of plans that we saw in a magazine. And, and I said, mom and dad, you realize I'm an architect, right? So we can, we can do something more specific and special for you. But the idea of, you know, pulling something out of a magazine is just, uh, I find it very challenging to swallow because there's so much that we can draw on as architects and should be um, from the environment in which a home is. Like it's, for example, solar orientation. Like when you wake up in the morning and you want a light and bright kitchen, well, there's only one way to get a light and bright kitchen. It has everything to do with solar orientation and how you bring the natural daylight in there. So when you're picking a plan out of a magazine, those types of considerations are not happening. So um, while I understand the concept of it, generally speaking, um, there's so many wonderful opportunities that any property or project um, offers. And for us as architects, it's really, it's all there for us to kind of discover and draw out so that the occupant of the building really finds themselves delighted with, with the end result. And it has really has everything to do with, with, with what they're surrounding them. And often, uh, most of it's about the natural surrounding. So daylighting again, I'm just, uh, I, yeah, I don't like white lights. So. <laughs> right. um, <laughs> yeah, so, you know, we talked about exterior, the neighborhood, yeah. the, you know, the, the um, exterior environment. I'm curious, when, when you're doing a renovation, you know, something, turning a sugar factory into condos, you know, um, what are the discussions and, and the thought processes around how the space will be used? What kind of questions do you ask your clients in order to um, come up with, and now I'm using the word efficient again, but I'm not talking about efficiency in the energy sense. I'm talking about efficiency in the sort of flow and spatial sense. Um, you know, what are, what are some good questions to, to get those juices flowing? Well, it's a, it's, when it comes to that type of work, um, well, one of our projects, so we were brought on to, uh, one of our very first adaptive reuse projects was the Douglas building on the, on the corner of, of Spring and Third. And it's a beautiful building. I think again, it was 1898 or 1902 is somewhere around the turn of the century. And the way that we had gotten a commission for a ground up, um, a ground up apartment building in downtown Long Beach was that particular client had walked through the Douglas building. And the way that the units were so very efficiently designed, um, because you know, as a developer, you're, you're trying to use 
you know, every square inch, and much like in Europe as well, right? How often do you find um, that uh, such unique apartment and or home like living because everything is like space is such a commodity. Right. So, so to your point about efficiencies, so making sure you know, we talk a lot about in this office, we talk a lot about ship architecture and um, and how when we design tiny spaces like the treehouse that you saw, mm -hmm. uh, when we work on sand lots in Manhattan Beach, and we're talking about lots that are half lots, you know, doing a home on a piece of property that's 30 by 45 is really an exercise in efficiency um, and space planning efficiency. So thinking about the flow, the way you walk through it, but getting back to the Douglas building, a developer had walked through that project in an open house and, and saw essentially how efficient it had been built, um, unbuilt, but designed, uh, not in a way, in a manner in which it just was tight, but rather the way that it flowed, even though it was technically a small footprint, it flowed very well. Mm -hmm. And that led them to ask us to design this building for them in Long Beach, which again, um, often from a developer standpoint, but then because time or I don't time so much, but space is such a commodity in terms of revenue, um, you're asked to put a lot of program into a very small area while also trying to balance it feeling right and feeling mm -hmm. good. And um, that's a hard thing to articulate, um, but over time, you, you learn it and um, and the more experience you have, the better you get at it. And I think for us, we're, you know, we're at a point where we've done it enough, where we, there's you know, somewhat of a formulaic approach in some in certain aspects, but efficiency is important and making you know, tiny houses can be wonderful. They don't need to feel tiny, but they can feel tiny if certain considerations are not being given to the way that they flow the way that they feel in terms of scale, um, the way that the light is brought into the space and you know, distracting the eye in terms of horizontal things to look at. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's, there's it's, a, it's a complicated subject, but, um, but it's an important one. Like efficient design is, um, I love it. I, I, I guess my lineage is also German and so maybe it's somewhere in my blood. That's my wife about that. But <laughs> I'll look at my sock drawer. Um, well, what's so cool is I think, I think, you know, our conversation a little earlier about some of the tools and the data, you know, and the analytics and all that is I'll bet, you know, this is just an educated guess, but I'll bet, you know, if you put two uh, architects together, you know, on the same project working side by side, and one of them was yourself looking, you know, to, to have a, it's not minimalism, but efficient design space-wise. And then you had somebody else who, you know, was really just by the book looking at, you know, okay, well, this is a cost here and this is a cost here. You, I would venture a guess that the, the data afterwards would tell you that the efficiently designed space is actually going to end up being less costly um, because even if your intention isn't to use less material, that will most likely be the, the, the result of that, of that process. And not only that, but, and that's a very good point, but when it comes also to um, multifamily housing, hmm. we find that the better that we, the better we design units, the longer people want to stay in them. And so from, from a, from a developer standpoint, and uh, do I have hard, do we have hard data on this? We have, we have testimonies from people that have lived in projects that we've designed, um, but I've got to believe that there's certainly a cost metric and savings and value to not having a high turnover in, for example, a multifamily housing project. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's something to be said for a well, a well-designed place of work or a well-designed you know, place to live. Not um, to mention, um, you know, I've had discussions with folks on the podcast and, and just in passing of the idea of sustainability itself as an amenity mm -hmm. in a multifamily situation where, you know, 
uh, and and we're already seeing it a little bit, you know, in the in this COVID slash post COVID era, you know, of indoor air quality, you know, the the uh, ASHRAE and and you know they're changing their codes on what is necessary and what is prescribed at this point based on the idea that air quality matters. And those of us, you know, who've been around for a little while, uh, even myself, you know, just a little while, you know, know the importance of air quality. And there's lots of statistics and data around productivity, wellness. I mean, there's entire building certification programs, the well uh, certification program that focuses on the people who are going to be interacting with that space. And so, um, you know, it's almost like the, the data backs up the, the intuition. Um, and really what you're doing when you're talking about sustainability is going back to sort of the way people did things when we didn't have, uh, you know, computers or graph paper or, uh, even a full understanding of how the planets moved, you know, it was just, just this idea of like, Oh, the light's coming from there. So we got to, face our building that direction you know it's it's very intuitive like almost human you know human uh humanistic in a way and it's remarkably simple but uh to your point about technology sometimes technology i think can overly complicate a matter so as architects we're called to really try to evaluate all the possibilities and help guide our clients in a direction that we think most maybe most sensible naturally they they would need to make their own minds up for themselves but um for us it's our responsibility to bring all of that in front of them mm-hmm. um and and you can use that data you know if you're if you've got the intuition already i would venture a guess that you can use that data you can use to to create a, a better informed design so you're really, you're just using the tools. You're not substituting for the actual, uh, you know, experience of being an architect and, and having that ex- experience under your belt. Yes. I mean, for us, we, we, we have, uh, we use, and we have been using a 3d modeling program since the mid nineties. And part of that 3d modeling program is a natural daylighting effect, um, in terms of tracking the sun. And so we'll, we'll place the building, be it an office or multi-family housing project or, or, or home, um, and then allow the sun to track through and get a, get a feel for how the light comes in, you know, whether it helps inform uh, how much of an overhang we might have um, in certain areas to, to help create a shading effect during the summer to help, that's, uh, I'm thinking of um, a second home, a different home, not the home of the geothermal system up in Oregon. Um, and we had, it, it's down below is a, an all glass box dining room. Up above is a, this kind of mass or it's a master uh, bathroom piece that's up above it. But um, there's a, a cantilever's out in three directions and that cantilever length was really determined um, by a shade and shadow study. And remarkably, when I was up there in the summer um, last year, um, it was a very warm day in August and uh, the sun was not entering into this glass box. Like it, it, this, it worked to my point. <laughs> the shadow, like the shadow lines and the sun did not even touch the glass. So, um, so, you can use technology that way and, um, and help, help inform the design too. That's awesome. Um, we're kind of nearing the end here cause yeah. I told you I wasn't gonna take up too much of your time, but, um, sort of two more little quick things. I, I heard today on this webinar that I was on that, the, you know, the most sustainable building is the one that already exists. <laughs> uh, and I really like that. Um, you know, we happen to be in mostly new construction, so I feel a little guilty about that, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it is there, there's, there's a shift that is going to need to happen. Um, and I'm curious, I mean, you started off by saying basically anytime you've presented the option of preserving pieces of, of a building, uh, you know, overwhelmingly clients are, are generally in favor of that. 
um, which is awesome. Are there, are there things that you think um, cities or municipalities or even the federal government or uh, are there things that can, they can do to in, incentivize that? Um, do you, how do you feel about, yeah, about like building codes and, you know, all that kind of stuff? <laughs> well, I mean, money, money always talks the loudest when it comes to those larger scale buildings. Um, you know, we recently um, completed uh, the Ford Motor Company. Well, we didn't complete anything. The Ford Motor Company building that's uh, just on the outskirts of the Arts District um, on the corner of 7th and Santa Fe. It's about a 270,000 square foot old Forder, Ford Motor Company building which, where they used to build, it was an assembly plant for cars um, back in the 20s and 30s. And um, there was a time when we, when we, our client had asked us, is, it, is this something that we should tear down? Hmm. And, um, and we said, oh my goodness, like look at the level of detailing. Look at, so just from a, a beauty standpoint, there was so much beauty in this building, in the architectural um, cornices and um, at every, just the, the brickwork. Ian, you just, you couldn't afford this kind of building in today's terms. Well, you can't even build with brick in California well, to begin with. <laughs> or, not, or not real brick, right? Yeah. It would have to be this, this fake. Facade, yeah. Um, but then you think of all the embodied energy, all the steel, all the concrete, that went into creating this structure. Uh, initially, the, the main building was built in 1912 or 1913, and then the assembly building was built in 1923. And, and this particular building had this beautiful clear story that ran you know, two, almost 300 feet down the, the center of the building and provides wow. all this beautiful natural daylight in the building. Um, and we restored all of it, seismically upfit the building, cleaned it up, and ultimately, we worked with Warner Music Group and the Rockwell Group as an interior designer. We moved them in, and now it's their headquarters. Um, but at the time, we were just we just wanted to improve the building and bring it back to its glory. It had been boarded up and painted purple, and the windows had been blown out and things like that. But to talk about like saving a building, and I just I, I don't even know where to begin. Like, how would you even put a cost? to all the embodied energy that is, is sitting there already and um, how much have you saved our environment by, um, by, by keeping all of that. And um, not only the fact that you're doing that, but then you're keeping all of this history, right, which is about our humanness. And then you're, you're keeping all of this, this beauty, this architectural beauty, which again, as I just mentioned, you so often you, you don't find that in your buildings. You just, you just don't anymore. Or you see it in a different, it's interpreted in a different way, but it's really a lost, it's a lost art. And so it was, it, it was a no brainer to try to keep this, but it was, maybe it was a no brainer after we went through the due diligence and the, the, the talk about it. Yeah. But as a developer, we said, oh, well, maybe we just, it's an old building, it's painted purple. It's, you know, a lot of the windows are missing. It's got a couple chips in it, you know, maybe we just tear it down, but, uh, but I'm glad they kept it. Yeah. Good work on that one for yeah. sure. Um, last question, uh, real quick. Is there a particular material or, you know, you mentioned recycled rubber band. No. <laughs> um, I've heard of recycled denim, but I've never heard of recycled rubber bands. I, don't know. I like that. No, that was good. Um, is there a particular, you know, process, methodology, uh, material that's out there that's, that's really inspiring to you as an architect? Uh, things you've, you know, read in architecture magazines or something you've seen yourself? I mean, you mentioned the geothermal, which I think is really cool already. Yeah. Um, but anything else? Uh, something that's new and, and hip. I mean, I'm always fascinated um, what's possible with 3D printing because you, t you talk about biomimicry and you know, an architecture that mimics the patterns of nature. Mm -hmm. um, I think to my point about what was, you know, what was uh, being done in the, in the 1912s and 13s in terms of ornament, uh, that's really hard for us to achieve 
in today's terms because just the labor, the skill, but some of that I believe can be achieved. And I mean, look at the Broad. I mean, the Broad is mm -hmm. this beautiful facade, which um, you know, 30 years ago could not possibly be built. Um, or if it, I, I don't know how it would be built. And it would probably be very, very, even more cost prohibitively, um, cost prohibitive to build it. Um, so I do think there's something really fascinating that's happening with that. Um, but for myself, I, I know this is old school, but I just love wood. And I know um, there's a lot of heavy timber, taller, heavy timber buildings that are happening now, even in seismic zones. Mm -hmm. and so I'm, I'm really, um, it's happening a lot in the Pacific Northwest, some, some in Vancouver. Um, so this heavy timber wood construction, it, you know, there's just something that's very naturally um, engaging about wood, be it the patterns or the tones or, you know, this, it's, it's, it's essentially a renewable um, building material if it's, if it's responsibly, um, you know, harvested and so on and so forth. So, and it's fun to work with and it smells good and, <laughs> You know, so, and I know that's very old school sounding, but um, there are some, you know, some technologies in terms of um, heat treating wood to make it more durable, um, you know, the chemical dipping and uh, more sustainable. I know some, some are more toxic, but there are some that, are, uh, that are com have come out of, um, uh, out of Scandinavia that are more sustainable. Um, but it's, you know, it's a chemical dipping of the wood and then it's a heat treating to caramelize the, the sugars for lack of a scientific way of describing it that makes wow. it a lot more durable as an exterior material because I think as architects we're often fighting, gosh, I'd love to use wood on the exterior of a building, but boy, it's it just really, um, unless you're just letting natural like cedar go gray, which you do in the Hamptons and that sort of thing. Sure. Um, but if you want to keep the certain tones and a certain crispness of wood, it's very hard to do that in the outdoors. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think there's a lot to be said for the ability of, of you know, future 3D printing and or lathes that, um, you know, that, that uh, laser cut things. Um, because I do think a lot of our architecture could benefit from some type of natural patterning. Just something, there's something that, I'm not a big ornament person for the sake of ornament, but there is something to be said for the beautiful patterns that exist in nature. Mm. And is there a way to bring some of that patterning back to, in a, in a, in a cost-effective way, back mm. into our architecture? Because, it, you know, again, the, the ornaments of, 80 years ago, it just required a certain craft and skill. And in today's terms, there's just, it, I just don't believe it really exists anymore unless you're in parts of Europe and you found some old school artisan that still does that, but certainly not in the States, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the, I think a lot of the ornamentation that we see in buildings today is what we've been talking about this whole time, which is taking these, you know, maybe an old beam or something or an old yeah. piece of wood and turning it into a table. I mean, th there's that idea that, Oh, I want to take something from the property itself. I mean, the idea, I think this doesn't really work in an urban environment, but um, you know, if you go out in the woods and you buy a, you know, five acre plot of land, you can build the entire building out of all of those materials that you know all the, the trees that you're clearing and the rocks and the you know, things that are there on the site um you can do that to some degree in an urban environment which which we've discussed um but yeah i i like i really love i love mass timber i love the idea of, of mass timber um uh and and I think it's got a lot of applications. It, it definitely checks off a lot of sustainability boxes, you know, from uh, lower embodied carbon to, um, you know, carbon sequestration, um, you know, so I, I'm excited about, about that as well. Yeah, um, it's beautiful. It just really, it's, it's quite beautiful. It really is. I, 
can't thank you enough, Chris, uh, for being yes. on. Did you want to throw any, uh, you know, websites or yeah, info I, or anything out? Yeah, please, uh, please follow us on Instagram or Rockefeller Temple, um, or visit us on our website, www.rockefellerkemple.com. And um, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, it's, it's, I love talking about this. We love it. It's so important to us. And it just hits, it hits, hits us right at the heart. Well, I, I can't thank you enough. Of course. I really appreciate it, Chris. All right, take care.